MailChimp presents. Hello, friend. I'm Paul Jarvis. Welcome to Call Paul, a show where I get to ring up some of the most interesting minds in small business and have thoughtful conversations about their unconventional approaches to commerce. I've run my own small company for the last 21 years, and I've written books on how bigger isn't always better in business. In this season, I'm talking to folks who are prioritizing doing the right thing over just the most profitable. Some are starting something brand new, standing up their businesses in an entirely new environment. Others have been at it a while, working to ensure their continued sustainability through turbulent times. And there's a lot to learn from everyone. You know, we're owned by um, three white people. I'm, I'm Mexican, but I, I'm for all intents and purposes white. And to have equity in our mission, and it's very clearly written that we are committed to being an anti-racist business using the tools at our disposal to uh, do our part in dismantling white supremacy. And that's a, that's a tall order uh, for a pottery company. And, and we're learning every day what that, what that means. That's Connie Matisse, the CEO of East Fork. Along with their co-founders, Alex Matisse and John Vigland, their company designs, manufactures, and sells thoughtful and durable ceramic dishware in Asheville, North Carolina. They've got a staff of over 100 and are growing quickly while working to stay true to their mission and values. At the heart of this mission is creating equitable middle-class jobs to their local community, as well as externally being radically transparent right down to a breakdown of expenses in the cost of each plate. East Fork was really the brainchild of my husband, Alex Matisse, um, who moved to North Carolina specifically because he knew that there was a rich pottery tradition here in North Carolina. Um, he grew up in a, a family of, of artists and anthropologists and you know, was instilled early on in his youth with a, a desire to kind of differentiate, set himself apart from his family. It's not something that we talk about too much in our own brand story, but his great-grandfather's Henri Matisse, obviously having a, a painter like that as like the, the patriarch of the family comes with that, that manifested differently in all of those kids. Um, and for Alex, it, it manifested in him wanting to kind of get as far away from any, anything having to do with the, the capital A art worlds um, and to do something that, that he really felt he could like build from the ground up. Um, and so Clay was a medium that he was always really attracted to, um, went to take do formal apprenticeship with a potter um, here in the Asheville area named Matt Jones, who'd worked with another potter named Mark Hewitt. In that in that model, you'd have your teacher, your your master potter, as it was called. We, you know, that's a weird word to use, but it's the word that they used back then. They would make a bowl, and you would make that bowl 500 times, and then your your teacher would come, or your, the master potter would come, and they would say, you know, this one's wrong, this one's wrong, this one's wrong, this one's wrong. Eliminate all the ones that were slightly imperfect, and and so you'd be making the same thing over and over and over again until you were. To, to, to find the one that was just right as far as like the, the lines and the feeling and the, the weight. And, um, and when he did that, he, he started making pots in, in the way that his teachers did. He really quickly um, realized that he wanted to build something that was not just the Alex Matisse pottery. 
And North Carolina is just a great place to make pots. There's a committed, engaged, um, kind of ravenous pot collecting community here. Like to see people literally lining up um, hours in advance of a kiln opening um, to like sprint and knock people out of the way to get the pot that they had their eye on or that they saw in the preview email. Like this, it's a completely like ravenous collector base. Um, and so that's, that's who, how we started off, you know, being selling pots to selling very different types of pots to people who were hungry for them. Um, and it, yeah, it grew from there, but that's, that was the origin of it. Interesting. That reminds me, a friend of mine um, is a master guitar maker, and it sounds very similar where his um, where his teacher would line up his guitars on the floor mm. and stomp through them if they weren't oh, wow. built <laughs> exactly um, a, as they should be. And that's how he learned how to make oh, guitars. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds um, very similar. <laughs> yeah. It, it sounds, sounds difficult, but useful, yeah. I guess. So then how long has East Fork existed and how what was how, I guess how did it kind of start out as okay well now I've now he's learned this skill and then he wants to make a company and you're part of it and there's another person part of it so what did that kind of look like East Fork Pottery started in 2009 that's when we fired the the big wood kiln for the first time and then East Fork um, when we dropped the pottery and, and really started seeing ourselves as more of a brand um, started in 2015 and prior to that John Viglin who's now our CFO um, had come from another um, apprenticeship to work with us back then it was the three of us and a couple of apprentices and we were trying to figure out how to um, to combine our skill sets to at, at that time we were we were noticing that pottery was kind of getting hot. I remember being in New York and like going to the Rachel Comey store and she was having like a ceramics holiday thing. And I was like, what's all this pottery? Like pottery was just starting to be cool all of a sudden in certain um, areas. And at first we were like really grumpy about that because there was a lot of really, really <laughs> bad pottery, just like, you know, amateur stuff that was being kind of touted as wabi-sabi. Like that's white people just absolutely love to just like co-opt the term wabi-sabi and apply it to, to stuff that's just like functionally and technically not very good, um, which is like so not, <laughs> so not how wabi-sabi works. But I was like, well, how do we participate in that conversation? Like, how do we bridge the gap between traditional North Carolina pottery um, that's made really intentionally and thoughtfully and this clear desire for, for people who have, you know, more modern aesthetics, but who still like want something that is really intentionally thoughtfully made. And I came from a restaurant background um, and a social justice background, like an activist background um, and a writing background. And so, um, and and John was an artist with parents who were accountants. Um, he didn't think he was going to become um, a finance guy. He was doing everything he could to avoid it, but turned out he had a real knack for that. Um, Alex has always had a knack for dreaming up really ridiculous big ideas and convincing everybody that it's going to work um, no matter how far-fetched they seem. So those three different skill sets kind of came together and, and the company really started growing really organically. Can you, for, for people who are listening that understand what pottery is, but don't understand kind of the process of it, can you paint a bit of a visual picture as far as what it looks like and what the place, uh, I guess the farm, I guess, or, or the other place that you have now, like what it looks like visually um, in, a, in a place that makes uh, intentional pottery? 
when we were in Madison County, um, you'd kind of drive up this little gravel road and you'd empty out into this big fields um, where there was a, a 36 foot long, six foot tall brick kiln that Alex and I had built with the help of some friends underneath a big shed and a workshop, pretty small, <laughs> too small, um, with a dirt floor um, and wheels that were propped up so that the potters stood up while they threw for efficiency of motion. Um, wear racks filled with pots, all in different stages of drying. Glaze buckets, like lots of raw materials everywhere. Big frames built out outside the workshop where clay was being recycled and made. And back then we would make pots for, for four months or so, um, load them all into the kiln. They would have like 1,200 pieces in, the, in one kiln load. We'd fire the kiln all at once and then sell all of them in kind of like a couple big events. At, at that point, when we were at, at Madison County, we had um, you know, maybe six people on staff. Um, now we have 106, I believe. Um, we have grown the process. Like we've, we've basically used every single technique that one can make to make pottery at this type of scale. Um, so now we, we are um, in a factory in Asheville, North Carolina, right downtown. Um, we built the factory from the ground up. Right now, pots are getting touched by like probably 12 sets of hands from start to finish. Uh, and we're slowly moving it. Our, our goal for the company is to be uh, a really great place to work that can help people um, achieve financial security and you know emotional security. Um, it's not necessarily to make handmade pottery. So we're going to continue to iterate on those processes and they're going to continue to become more industrial. So constant state of flux, essentially. <laughs> Interesting. You you went from in the beginning, there was like six or so people to over 100 now. So how do you as a business owner grow, but stay true to the values that you started the bit like you founded the, the business on a certain set of principles. But that's when it was just you all and, and a small group of people. But now you've grown and you're continuing to grow, right? Yeah, I think the the most important part of um of staying true to values is um, not being scared to really make mistakes. And uh, most importantly, to really sit down and take time understanding why those mistakes were made and, and getting feedback from other people about how you made mistakes and committing to doing it better the next time and, um, and never backing away. I, I think at East Fork, you know, we're owned by three white people. I'm, I'm Mexican, but I am for all intents and purposes white and to have equity in our mission. And it's very clearly written that we are committed to being an anti-racist business using the tools at our disposal to do our part in dismantling white supremacy. And that's a, that's a tall order for a pottery company. And, and we're learning every day what that, what that means. And I think early on, we really had it wrong. I, I think we had this kind of like savior sort of mentality where we could build this little utopia and we could be like all things to all people and, you know, provide our employees with all this like emotional support and like a refuge from real, from the real world. And that, that manifested in a lot of people on the team doing a lot of emotional labor and um, that they really weren't qualified to do. So that's, that was, I'd say like the, the biggest lesson that we learned early on um, is how to, as we grow, set really clear boundaries up around what we can and can't offer as an employer. And, and that looked like us messing up a lot and working with amazing consultants who know a lot more than we do about, um, about, equity work um, and continuing to seek their counsel. The same thing with therapy. Like you, you, you can't just work with a consultant or you can't just seek help from, from people who know more than you do when things are really bad. Like there's this constant need needing to be in, in actual relationship and community with people who are, who are doing similar, have similar desires, um, have a similar 
vision of what the world could look like. So yeah, we've just kind of built out this, this team of people who have a lot of knowledge that we don't have and we lean on them pretty hard and we, you know, pay them for their services and we don't expect people to give us work for free. And we invest a lot of money. And if you want to actually be committed to leading with your values, like you're going to have to go against the model that most businesses use, which puts profit before people. And that's something that people, uh, they say that they're willing to do. And then when the, when the rubber hits the road, it's, um, it's a different story. What would you say uh, to somebody who doesn't necessarily understand the, the benefit of, uh, of running and leading w- with values in, in, a, in a business? <laughs> through the internet, all things are possible. And it's basically like right now, if you're going to be a company that um, that cuts corners and treats your people poorly, people are going to find out about it. it. It's kind of a bummer to see some companies get called out for stuff and like then make absolutely no changes. And then people completely forgetting about the, 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 the kind of asks that were made of that company and then that company being totally fine. Like, I think ultimately like those companies are not going to be the ones that stick around for a hundred years. And we really are like, we, we judge our, you know, our, our KPIs are much more centered in like community impacts and um, the impact that we're having on the employees. That, so like, we just have a different understanding of what a successful company looks like. There's so many, especially like the, in the direct to consumer world where brands are kind of manufactured, they're kind of born from this like playbook that everyone knows where someone wanted to disrupt the system or, you know, work with the same five agencies to make a brand that looks ubiquitous and they launch something like those companies are like a dime a dozen, you know, they're going to, you might like make a quick buck. What, you know what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say is I think that less people should be starting businesses. (laughs) So... Yeah, I mean, like, I come from tech, right? So I understand that let's disrupt everything. And now, like, with those with those electric scooters and bikes, and now there's just graveyards of millions of bikes it's, in oh, Asia. The scooters, the scooters. <laughs> that, uh, was, that disrupted cities for, like, yeah, half a day. it's awful. I mean, I just don't know if anything that I say is going to convince people not to be assholes, though, you know? Like, it's there's going to continue to be people who, who are in it for the wrong reasons, I think that there are lots of people who are in it for the right reasons who just don't know what, how to, how to build. Like I, I'm more interested in talking to those people mm-hmm. who are like, I just, I actually do want to start a business, but I, I don't know how to do it in a way that's not just copying the, the playbook of this, of my friend who's an MBA who told me, here's how you make a business. And so I think that we have more, um, yeah. uh, can make more impact if we're like speaking directly to those people, like while we let like the rest of the quote disruptors just like like the, those are like the signifiers of like the end of the human species in my eyes. Like they're going to like burn out however they need to. And like, I can't really worry about them too much. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think there's a, there's a difference in terms of, uh, in terms of how you structure a business. If, if you're thinking about, okay, well, what does it take to exit versus what does it take to continue to exist? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, from a, if, we have had a, a somehow, I mean, Alex is really good at this. Like we have incredible value add investors um, and we're, we're in the middle of a race right now. And um, you know, the people who are investing in our company, they, they believe in us and our mission. They are not doing it because they think that they're going to be able to get out with a lot of money. Like they're doing it because they really do believe that, that we can pave a new path for people who want to have businesses that are playing in that very confusing space between capitalism and and liberation (laughs) and and it's like it's I think that capitalism is ultimately not what's not going to work forever um I don't I'm not a capitalist um but I you have to understand that playbook um in order to 
I don't know, to, to figure out how to dismantle it and, and build something new. Um, and so it's, I, I want to kind of separate what we're doing from this idea of like, um, do good businesses, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it might be, it might be useful to the people, um, who are listening that maybe want to do similar to you. Um, if you could explain as much as you can about what the, what, the, what your pitch is to the, the types of investors who are, who are all in on this. So I think I'll, I'll, there's a lot of misconceptions about raising capital and that you have to be a certain type of company with a certain type of playbook mm-hmm. who's maximizing profit in, in a certain way. I mean, so here's the, here's why I'm having a hard time answering this question is because we ha- everyone who's invested in our company, we've mostly, it's mostly been inbounds and they've come to us and they've said, we've never seen a company like yours before. Um, we, we are desperate to be a part of it. So I, I, I get that that sounds like a obnoxious braggy, like pat myself on the back sort of thing, but like it's, we are drawing people to us who can cut, who cut right through bullshit in other companies and see that we're not bullshit. Like they, they see us working our asses off to like do the thing that not just like working our asses off, but like working our asses off toward a very specific purpose of being decent people and, um, and holding ourselves accountable every day. Yeah. I mean, I can get really down on all the things that I do wrong. Like I, I just stepped into the CEO position. I, I feel so nervous that I'm going to screw everything up. And, um, you know, I, I'm taking like a financial accounting course. Cause I like every time John sends me a, <laughs> um, financials to look at, like my brain starts itching and I get nervous. And, um, but I, I also really, really believe in our ability to, um, to, to make a mistake and learn from it and do better next time. I, I think that that is like the, the, what people see us doing. Um, and they believe in it. I think I, maybe I'm a bad person to interview for this. Cause I, I, I feel like I do a lot of, um, a lot of trying to talk people out of starting businesses if they don't really know what they're getting themselves into. Um, yeah. I think you answered the question though, without knowing it, because I think it, I to me it seems like the answer is that the way that your business exists is, is true to its values and, and honest. It it was it was interesting to see just how open and honest the company is. For like the the CFO's posts uh, detailed financial information on your website about the business, and I think that kind of thing just. Yeah, I think that that that's what resonates with with these people who are are inbound and coming to you. I mean, that was it was so interesting when we, when we had that idea um, to start posting our financials like that. Like, you know, our, our advisors were like, "We love the idea, but like maybe just like ask around and and get <laughs> get a pulse check to see if that's an okay thing to do." And I so we did. I was like, "We have this idea. We want to co- make a, a quarterly post that that gives like a financial look back and tells you if we were profitable or you know where our money was spent and." Um, I thought it seemed like a good idea and everyone was just like, no, absolutely not. You cannot do that. No, that's, that's murder suicide. That's a terrible idea. And nobody had a good reason at all. Like nobody had a single reason. And I was like, it's the only, the only reason I can see someone not doing this is they have something to hide. (laughs) Like, and if you're trying to be a company that is true to your values, then like first and foremost, you should never be making a business decision that you feel like you have to hide ever, ever. Um, and if you're, if you are like, that is a big red flag that you are drifting off course, you know? Um, and so that's, you know, now that we, we have these executive syncs every week now and, um, 
every decision we make, uh, the the kind of gut check I run around it is like, is this something that we would we could post on Instagram and feel okay about? You know, how do we how can we explain ourselves here? Is there a valid reason for us making this choice? And you know, we've we've, we've made some mistakes, but when it comes to how we've how we've invested our money or you know the bigger decisions, like we we've I feel like we've done a good job of using those values as like living, breathing tools that we actively use to make every decision mm-hmm. that we make. And I think that that's the, the, the thing about transparency is you can't just pick and choose when and where you're transparent. No. <laughs> that's not, tra- that's, that's, that's not transparency. Oh <laughs> yeah. When transparency is your like marketing tool, it's like, yeah. it's just, yeah, it's just so obvious too. Like when companies have like transparency Tuesdays and they like talk to like one person on these are all the things that went right for us this week (laughs) yeah well uh, okay so i want to talk to you uh, about marketing because on the on on the website uh you say that that how you approach marketing is tell the truth show what's real be ourselves be respectful throw fun parties take customers seriously and nurture relationships how did you how did you get to that approach and what advice would you give to somebody who's scared of that approach in, in, in marketing? So we got to that approach for budgetary reasons. Um, we have a very small marketing budget. It always cracks me up when people try to, when they their vision of what our marketing team and our marketing budget looks like is just so wildly um, you know, just inaccurate. Um, we have an amazing staff photographer. We do a lot in house. We, we, we've never outsourced photography. We just hired a videographer. Um, we take, uh, we, we invest a lot in that creative process, but, um, we've just needed to prioritize resources to our production team and to our administrative costs and marketing has always had to take a back seat because it could. Um, and until this year, until the last three months, like we've, we've always um, been in the place of selling more than we could make. That is just switched because all of the work that we've been doing to grow the production side of things is, is now coming to fruition. I just hired a director of marketing. I'm very excited. Um, yeah. Nice. Our marketing team is really two people right now. Um, and we don't even have a marketing meeting. It's really, it's a, it's a bad situation, but yeah. So we, we did that because that was, I didn't go to business school. I didn't come from a marketing background. I, again, like I, was really good at, at, uh, like lifelong loyal friendships and really good at throwing parties and really good at having these like bringing really silly ideas. I remember some of the earlier events that we threw, uh, we made like paper crowns and had like a boudoir photographer and made like face masks out of, um, like avocado and like had like a marble nail marbling. Like this was in our store. And I was like, it just made no sense, but everyone had the best time. And so, yeah, we started doing that kind of really early on and, and our marketing strategy just became like, we, we didn't do anything if it didn't tie back to something that something else, someone else was already doing. So it just became about doing fun stuff and then telling the stories around it and always tying it back to our values and our mission. Uh, I think a lot of people who don't do marketing have a sour taste in their mouth about marketing because they think marketing is supposed to be this one specific way and it feels kind of dirty, but you do it anyways because you have to. But this is a good example of not doing that. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't do it. Like I, I'm a really salty person who puts my foot in my mouth constantly. Like I, like I am not a person who you can like bring to a dinner party and expect not to say something. If someone says something like, you know, like really outrageous. Like I just couldn't fake it. Like if I, I don't know, like sometimes I talk to other business owners and I'm, we're trying to have like an Instagram live conversation and like, 
I, I feel bad because I'm like, you've clearly like looked in the mirror and like said your pitch 400 times and you're so good at it. And meanwhile, I'm just over here talking about God knows what and like missing all of my talking points, but I, I can't fake it. So this is like the only way. Um, it also can't work out forever. Like I can't, I burn out. I'm always on the edge of burnout. I, and when I am on the edge of burnout, like that's when I do really stupid things and like a, a really also important lesson for me in, in humility. Like I, I have no interest in being the, the one and only face of East Fork until I die. Like that's, and I, I don't think that I need to be, uh, I just don't know what it's, what the next phase of it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. I think that's hard though, because a lot of people who are drawn to start a business also have this idea that they can do all of it. And the burnout that you talk about resonates because I think it happens to all, to pretty much everybody. I think in some some cases is giving up control. In some cases, it's just realizing that well, I you might get to a point where you you just physically humanly can't do all the stuff, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that can be yeah that can be that can be difficult. I mean, speak, speaking from personal experience and running small companies for the last couple decades like it's hard to it's hard I I guess I personally I've come to that realization too late every single time where I I get to burnout and then I realize I need to course correct because this is not healthy yeah yeah yes it's always when you get like that's the secret is is understanding where your resiliency levels are at all times and like not letting yourself get to that point. I have not cracked that code, but getting back on my, my white supremacy soapbox again, like the, what I have learned from, from engaging in, in this liberation work is just how, like the idea that I personally, I Connie Matisse, like am the only person who's suited to do this thing. And, and I must like put myself on a cross in order to do it in order to run this company, to steer the ship, because I can, I, heaven forbid, there might be other people out there in the world who have skills that could be helpful. Um, That sort of like, you know, individualism over collectivism and like idea that, (laughs) that I am like God is like so deeply rooted in white supremacy. Um, And this idea that I have to sacrifice my own well-being and in service of others is so deeply rooted in patriarchy. And like, at some point you just got to be like, I'm actually just participating in this really messed up system that I need to actively like throw a wrench in. And it's really hard for me because I'm, I have, you know, learned my whole life to, to if I was ever sitting still or resting that I was somehow, you know, not contributing, not being productive, but you know what, that's what therapy is for. (laughs) That is what it means. Like being community with people who are, who are experiencing the same thing and starting to call attention to the fact that like, Hey, Oh, this is, this isn't making any sense. Like this is not in service of anyone's best interest. Like we got to do this differently. Yep. No, that makes sense. We've been on your newsletter for, for a while. And we noticed, I think it was last week or the week before, um, you started to talk, you were talking about how you've raised the company-wide minimum wage to to $20. And, and a goal for East Fork really is to provide solid middle-class jobs in your area. But that's added over a million bucks to your payroll expenses. Can you Can you talk about this and kind of walk us through the thought process for getting from okay, this is something we feel like we want to do to this is something that's now implemented. Yeah, yeah, this was um, a real joint um, effort. And I'm really proud of of Alex and John and I for getting to this point because um, this was a hard call to make 
Alex had has always wanted it, it's been a priority since we moved into this building for him to to have a twenty dollar an hour minimum wage. And John had always been the more financially conservative one in the group, has wanted to take a more slow and steady approach, so incrementally increasing wages over time. Um, and then the pandemic really just like put things into a lot of perspective for us. Um, we navigated this thing as best as any company could have could have possibly hoped for. Um, we managed to keep our entire staff on. We kept everyone paid during shutdown. Our, our factory was shut down for two weeks. Um, everyone stayed on payroll. You know, we grew um, quite a bit. So we, we, we did fine during the pandemic. We did well. People at our company felt taken care of in that regard. But we also um, live in a, a city that is um, rapidly gentrifying. Um, Asheville is you know, constantly on these, um, you know, top five lists of places to visit. And you know, the cost of living here is just skyrocketing. Like it's, it's changed. I've been here for 15 years now. And it, we were noticing that people who were already getting paid a $17 an hour wage couldn't get their car fixed and they couldn't afford a cell phone and they were, couldn't get to work because they were having to move out of Buncombe County. And um, you know, people who were working on our team were, they were, we were having, we had this mission that said that we were, you know, providing good paying jobs. And like, we couldn't even like go to sleep at night because we didn't actually think that was true anymore. Like we were watching people actively like struggling to have their basic needs met in this city that they grew up in. Um, and we, we couldn't live, like we just couldn't keep doing this business without um, making a dramatic change. Um, and so John, who um, is really good at his job, um, did some very creative, I mean, he also he secured us two rounds of PPP. We had some money in the bank and we had a, a few ways that we could spend it. What I was noticing over the last year is just how how much of a toll our our growth was taking on on the mental health of everyone here at the company. Um, we had we had planned actually to move into a bigger facility this September, and everybody was so stressed out, so overworked. Like everyone was about to have a mental health crisis. Like the whole company felt like just tired. And, and so we made a decision to um, dramatically slow down our growth plans for the next two years. And rather than investing that money early on in growth, we decided to just do a overhaul on our wages. I think it was the right call. Shockingly, none of our investors had a single, like this, we're so lucky. Like they were all like, yay, we love you guys. You did it. Yay. Um, and yeah, we just we just did it, and uh, now we just have to cross our fingers and hope that we keep selling pots the rest of this year. What's the I guess what's the long term ultimate goal for East Fork? As in, say we check back in five or ten or fifty. Yeah, the podcast is still on the air fifty years from now. We check back in with you um, or whoever it is who's doing East Fork. What do you want that to look like if it goes according to plan? In 10 years, I see us being the largest manufacturer of ceramic tabletop in the country. Um, I see us having a, um, a campus um, that has a restaurant and a cafeteria with a event space. I see us having a, we want to have kind of a, an adjacent foundation attached to the company that can serve as a, as a learning and development center for folks who aren't quite ready for full-time employment, but who can get paid a full-time employment rate, um, but without the expectations of productivity that folks in the, uh, the rest of the production team um, have. And that having lots of different ancillary services to so, um, workforce development um, in-house and um, an equitable recruiting program that we've we've kind of mapped out and is now available to any other company who wants to use it, potentially reimagining um, an approach to learning that that skill in a way that's that's divorced from that um, 
the way that Alex and John did it that were kind of required that financial privilege, basically just a big old pottery factory where uh, or the kind of the number one reason for existing is to provide a place to work that is um, that's that's truly in service of financial, physical, emotional security of its employees. That's that's the goal one day. East Fork is a great example of a company which has determined that being successful is about more than straight up being financially in the black. It's about how employees are treated and paid, and in what ways their company can serve as something that makes the world a better place. As a small business, you get to define success. Sure, it can be, my company made more than it spent last year. but. It can also be, just like East Fork, my company made a positive difference in the lives of my employees. It's hard to run a business, but the most fulfilling aspect of doing this difficult thing is that we are able to define the markers we measure our success against. When your business is growing and your products are in demand, it's easiest to just ride that wave of success. But in growing without questioning, you may not be serving your mission in the long run. Which is why every step along the way should be met with careful introspection into just what the ramifications are for scaling a business, how it affects you, the founder, your employees, your community, and even your customers. Thank you so much for listening to this season of Call Paul. Call Paul is wonderfully produced by Ruth Eddy and is a MailChimp original podcast. Subscribe now in your favorite podcast player so you can check out all our other episodes and seasons. And if you want more awesome content, check out MailChimp.com slash presents.